Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Dominique Moss, founder of The Return Hub, and Reggie Nelson from Legal and General Investment Management. In 2016, Dominique set up the Return Hub to fill a significant gap in the executive search market. She has long been passionate about realising the potential of senior women in the city, and her firm places professionals who want to relaunch their career after a break or transfer their careers within the sector. Dominique has spent 20 years working in the industry, offering a combination of capital markets expertise as well as insight into industry trends and dynamics. For example, she was a former partner at JD Haspel in global banking and markets, and Dominique was also the head of diversity, and before that, a managing director at Sheffield Haworth, where she set up the foreign exchange practice at Global Head of Fixed Income and Currencies. Dominique, welcome to the show. Thank you, Julia. Reggie Nelson's journey into the city created a great deal of media interest, described as the young man who went from East London to the city. On his journey, Reggie graduated with an economics degree whilst also studying Mandarin and has completed five internships at BlackRock, Aberdeen Standard Investments and Armstrong Investment Managers. Today, Reggie is a graduate analyst rotating across client business and investments at Legal and General Investment Management. He is also chair of the ACCA Emerging Talent Advisory Group and a youth mentor for one of the largest youth networks in the UK. And he was described by the Prime Minister herself as a persistent and inspiring young person. Reggie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Julia. And as always, at the start of the show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So, Dominique, let me start with you. What are you particularly focused on at the moment? Um, so, essentially, we I set the business up in 2016 to fill this big gap in the recruitment industry. I'd had a sort of chance meeting, somewhat chance meeting, with this fantastic lady who was working at one of the investment banks down at Canary Wharf and very involved with their return to work program. And I, I hadn't really heard of this concept before, but um, was intrigued to know more about it. And it was this sort of three month internship to provide a low risk structure for the employer to bring someone back who'd had a career gap and get to see them work in a real business situation and hopefully then transition them into a permanent role. And um, I, sh- I had lots of questions for her about this program. And one of them was how many applications do you get for your program and how many places do you have? And when she said to me that they had about 400 applications for 20 places, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I thought, who are all these people trying to get back to work? And um, and actually having been a headhunter for many, many years and having been asked by my clients, you know, all the time, how can you help us reach more female candidates and not really having a very good answer. I was just really intrigued to know more. And I thought, well, you know, who's helping the 380 that aren't getting on this program? And I took the view that there must be lots of employers who would love to do the same thing and reach this talent pool, but just didn't have the resources or the know-how of a big investment bank. And that was really where the idea for the business started. And, and so really since then, we have, we've built our candidate population. We've built our, our fantastic client base to include sort of big FTSE 100 companies to small privately owned businesses and everything in between. And we, we're now very focused on, um, and, and sort of 
basically placing people back into work, either as part of a sort of return to work program where that might be necessary, or actually the majority of what we now do is really putting our candidates, the vast majority of whom are absolutely desk ready back into permanent roles in the financial services sector. Wonderful. And I'm sure there are many sort of considerations around the return to work uh, concept, if you like, uh, that, that we'll certainly pick into in a second. Wonderful. Thanks very much indeed. And Richie, now let, let me turn to you. What are you f- focused on at the moment? So right now I... I'm focusing a lot on my youth mentoring, aside from the work that I do in my nine to five. So I do some youth mentoring for a youth group in East London. And that's essentially to help young people who are from an uh, underrepresented background and from a socially challenged background become the most competitive candidate they can be when they go to look for internships and, and placements. So that takes up a lot of my time. In work, I also am the lead mentor for the social Economic Mobility Committee, um, which is in partnership with the Ethnicity Stream as well for Legal and General Investment Management. And that is, again, helping undergraduates from socially challenged backgrounds become the most competitive candidate that they can be. Along with that, I'm also chairing the ACCA. So again, undergraduates from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, helping them to give the skills and the sort of tips and tricks that they need so that when they go into a place of work, they don't sort of have the same mistakes that I had or other people had along the way. So these three streams are the things that are keeping me quite busy. So well, let's start with your your story about how you came into the city. Tell us about that. So rewinding the clock, I actually used to play football at quite a high level. So I played football at youth professional level and then youth semi-professional level. And when I hit 17, I decided that I didn't want to play football anymore. And that was tough for me because I never really studied from zero to 17. So I didn't really know where I would go. I didn't know where my academic strengths were, whether they were in literacy or maths or science. So when I decided to hang up my boots, as it were, I sat down and said, what am I going to do? And that's when the idea sort of came because I, I knew that I wanted to become wealthy one day and that was my sort of end goal. But growing up in the environment I grew up, I didn't know how people amassed their wealth. So I decided to research into Google wealthiest areas in London and took the train to Kensington and Chelsea. It's like knocking on people's doors and asking them, you know, what skills do you have to amass your wealth? And I, long story short, I met Quinton Price, who was at the time head of Alpha Strategies at BlackRock. And him and his wife opened the door, invited me in. And they've been guiding me since, um, since the day I knocked on their door, which is in 2014. They invited me to BlackRock the week after. And then from there, they encouraged me to go to university. So I went and then I started to apply for internships and I started to be you know, accepted onto internships. And then I graduated in 2017 with a 2-1 in economics, uh, completing five internships across the city and now work in finance today. So that's a very long story short. Amazing. And when you went on that journey, is there anything that sort of surprised you uh, when you started to come into the city and through some of those internships or when you went, actually, this isn't what I expected at all. Yeah, it was a real culture shock and it was a real difference to what I was used to. So when I, I remember when I first went to BlackRock, um, I went with my tie, which was really short because I didn't know how to wear a tie. So my tie was very, very short and I wore this Nike man bag and everything was just wrong with the way I was dressed, with the way I was there speaking, everything was just wrong. So the biggest challenge for me was just adapting to sort of life in the city because no one had ever taught me how to to dress. No one had ever taught me how to wear a tie or what to say and what not to say. And that was the biggest thing, just navigating your way through the city and what you can slash can't do. And I was fortunate because I had Quinton and I had another person called Nathan who was like a peer mentor for me. Um, He was at BlackRock. And he was also from West London and he was there to sort of guide me through that as well. So I, I felt 
reassured. But when you was there with other candidates who are of sort of excellence, it is quite intimidating because they somehow already know what to do, what to say, how to wear their tie. Whereas you're there and you're adjusting your tie in the toilet because you know that it's too short now. That's true. And and, and when you talk about candidates of excellence, I mean, that you were certainly in that field. It's just <laughs> to put yourself down in terms of the, the candidates <laughs> of excellence. But, but, when, but then you went in to do all these internships as well. And I'm really fascinated to kind of what, what the most valuable learning from that experience has been. You just touched on it now, actually. I've, the, value, the most valuable lesson I learned on my internships were that, number one, I did belong to be there. And I was good enough to be there because I... I used to play myself down a lot because when I, when I went to, you know, intern at these places, you know, I looked around and, you know, there wasn't many people that looked like me, but there wasn't many people that were from the same background as me either. So I grew up in a council estate in East London. I grew up with a single parent household and didn't have much money growing up. And when you speak to these, your, your sort of, uh, the people that you're working with, they went to private school. They, um, probably live with both parents. They went on ski trips and stuff like that. And these are things that you just learn when you're speaking to them on a day-to-day basis. So the biggest sort of difference for me was being able to adapt and work with them because when they say all of these things, it's, in your head, it's like, oh, these guys are better than I am. But deep down, you are as good as them because you've gone through the same process as them. You've done the same tests as them. You've interviewed, you've been interviewed by the same colleagues as them. So you are good enough to be there. And I had to learn that because even when I got projects and things to do, if someone that went to Cambridge gave an idea, my mindset was he goes to Cambridge, so he must be right. And my idea must not be right. So I just had to sort of train my mind up to say that I am good enough to be here. And it took a bit of a while. It took about a year and a bit. So I I was held back quite a bit on my internships and stuff, but I guess it's all worked out well now. And is that part of the advice you also give when you're, and you mentioned about sort of mentoring as well? Definitely. One of the biggest pieces of advice I give is you are good enough to be there because it's almost like imposter syndrome. And people sometimes think, oh, what if people find out this about me and that about me? But I, I, I always tell them, embrace your story and embrace where you came from and embrace where you are now. Because when I was in front of sort of managing directors, they wanted to know more about me as opposed to what I thought about myself. So they thrived off the fact that I didn't probably go to a Russ Group University and they thrived off the fact that I came from a sort of different background to everyone else. So I tell them to embrace that and to understand that you are good enough to be there. And it's not about where you came from or your ethnicity per se. It's more about how well can you do that job? And the more you focus on that, the less you you focus on other things and you'll be able to eradicate the things that don't mean anything in front of the employers and the people that you're working with. So definitely that's one of the biggest advices. That and I, I think this whole thing about, you know, embrace your difference. You know, everybody imagines that the world of the city is so homogenous in some ways, but actually what we need now more than anything else, is we need difference and we need people who don't, don't come from the same sort of career paths or, or educational models as well. And Dominic, let me bring you in here because uh, I mean, your focus is on, on, professionals who want to relaunch their careers. What do you mean by relaunch? Can we pick away at that a bit more? Yeah. So um, so there was a piece of research that was done a couple of years ago now by PwC on the topic of women returners. And they um, identified that there are 427,000 professional women currently on a career break who will return to work. So when we talk about relaunch, I mean, I often get asked actually by clients, you know, what's they tell me, what's a typical returner? And, you know, the reality is there isn't a typical returner. Everyone has a different story. Um, But in general, these are people who've had a corporate career. Um, The vast majority of our candidates have got more than 10 years experience before they've gone and done something else. Um, And the something else can be um, to take time out to, to raise a family, to look after elderly parents, 
Um, but sometimes whilst they're doing that, they're also being entrepreneurs, launching a business, um, you know, helping a friend with a startup, uh, doing a sort of finance role, consulting somewhere, uh, travel, doing charity work, uh, being head of the PTA or, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, but they've got to a point now where they are ready to relaunch a corporate career. And um, really one of the sort of common things that I hear from them is, you know, when I sort of say, you know, what do you want to do? Invariably, I get the answer that um, I want to do interesting and challenging work, but the really key thing is I want to be part of a team again. And um, and and this is really what we mean by sort of relaunch. It's going back into a corporate career. And when they come and talk to you, do they have very specific views in mind about how the world of financial services might have shifted? Or at the other end of the spectrum, is it, I know what the city does? I think... Oh, gosh, I mean, it really does, you know, it really varies. Um, you know, someone who's been out for perhaps 18 months, two years, or, or even five years, but been sort of, you know, an entrepreneur and launching a fintech business or something like that is obviously a different kettle of fish from someone who might have been a sort of what perhaps one might assume as a returner as someone who's been out just raising a family for, you know, quite a long time. Um, I think, I mean, I remember when I was d- doing sort of some of my research at the sort of early stages before sort of launching the business, and I remember speaking to one sort of city grandee who said to me, you know, gosh, do you really think these women are going to want to go back to the city? You know, it's very competitive and, um, you know, sort of aggressive environment and all this kind of stuff. And actually that turned out to be complete nonsense because um, since we, since we launched our business, we've now got over two and a half thousand uh, candidates who've registered with us. And I really do think that we are just, you know, at the tip of the iceberg, scratching the surface of who, who is out there. And, you know, I, I've worked in the city for 20 years and I've, I've, you know, I've loved it. And, you know, you've got some incredibly smart, engaging, funny people who, um, uh, you know, who, who work here and, and it can be incredibly exciting and thrilling, um, career. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you've come from that background and you've done, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in that environment, um, that's what you know, and probably that's what you love. And there are certainly lots of, of women and, and we do actually work with some men as well. I mean, the vast majority of candidates we work with are women, but, um, but, and they, but they want to get back to it. And when you're thinking about sort of relaunching, uh, back into an industry, I mean, one of the spectrum, you've got, of course, uh, fintech innovation at the sharp end of data and management and algorithms and AI, et cetera, and cyber. And at the other end, you, you know, the, arguably the more traditional investment management institution, in, uh, uh, investment end. What advice do you give those thinking about relaunching back into the industry, back kind of keeping current on top of trends? Yeah. So I think the first thing to think about is, you know, do your research. So if you have been out for a period of time, re-engage with your professional network. Um, you'd be amazed at how many people I'm sure will be only too happy to help if you, you know, call them up and say, look, I'm, I'm thinking about coming back to work. I'm, you know, just keen to do my research and find out, you know, what are the trends? What's keeping people awake at night? Um, what's going on? Um, you know, offering to, to take someone out for a cup of coffee, you know, 99 times you, out of 100, you'll be, people will be only too happy to help. Um, so I think, you know, start with research. One of the key things as well, I think, which is a great place to start with that is on social media. So, you know, if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter. It's a great way of kind of curating a library of content that's very relevant to your industry. You know, find out who the thought leaders are and what they're saying about your um, about your sector. Um, and the same is true of LinkedIn. You know, if you're not on LinkedIn, make sure your profile's up to date. Um, start building your connections and um, and and just, yes, re-engage with your professional network. And one of the things I always think about is, I mean, you talk about social media, media there and, and how 
you know, the world of work has changed so dynamically recently. But but I I worry uh, and think quite a lot about how organisations need to adapt to attract young talent as well. And Reggie, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what organisations need to do attract and motivate young talent uh, into the industry. Well, I, I hear a lot of uh, institutions saying that they want to attract a, a wide range of talent and a wide diversity of talent. And one thing that I've seen that a lot of organisations aren't doing at the moment is they're not casting a net far enough and wide enough to attract that talent. And what I mean by that is that if you go online and you look at some of the top organisations that graduates are really striving to work for, they still have things like uh, state your university and then oh, what did you get for you know how many UCAS points you have or um, state what grade you got at GCSEs etc etc now someone like me who you know I'm fortunate enough to be in this position now because I had to work really hard but I started working hard at 17 when I decided to stop playing football so A levels for me I didn't really do them GCSEs I didn't really do them so if that that criteria still apply to me, then I ideally shouldn't be where I am today because then I wouldn't be able to apply for it because I don't hit the the benchmark for UCAS or the benchmark for GCSEs. So I just feel like some organisations, if you do want to attract talent, some people do peak later on in their lives than other people. Some people might have been facing challenges when they were at school or college or might have suffered bereavement or different things along the way that have impeded them to excel to their full potential. So if these organisations want to attract talent, then one thing they can do is disregard or show less of an emphasis on the the grading criteria before university and use university as a time to really say okay what did you do at university what did you get involved in university what grade did you get in your first year second year, in your third year use university as the main criteria as opposed to tracking back all those times before and another thing is they can cast their nets further than Russell Group universities as well because Again, if you look at it, a lot of the people that I interned with went to Cambridge, Oxford, LSE or Durham. And I argue, no, these people are really, really intelligent and they're really, really bright. However, you have got other bright candidates that do go to non-Ruskin universities. And that diversity of thought and that diversity of thinking can really help an organisation to grow as well. So I feel like in order to attract the best talent, cast a net further, wider, and ensure that you're giving an opportunity to those that not only didn't go to Ruskin universities, but also those that may have had a later start in their academic career as well. Because everybody evolves at different paces. And I think that's the interesting thing also about returners as well, which yeah. everybody's got different lifelong learning or, or life career roads as well. And, and thinking about sort of expectations and demands of organisational structures, because taking a little bit of time out of uh, an organisation, things might have radically changed. How are organisational cultures and structures changing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, d I definitely do think that, you know, more and more companies that can adopt flexible working strategies are going to attract more diverse talent. I mean, and, and I'm not talking just specifically about sort of senior female talent. Um, this is the direction of travel and is going to be the future of work. And I went to an event recently actually on the topic of the future of work. And there was a fascinating professor there who was a professor, professor of intergenerational studies. And she talked about um, the Generation Zers in the workplace now who uh, will be looking to retire, you know, much, much later, sort of, you know, late 70s, 80. And the idea that they're going to come in and have a kind of very linear career path for all of that time is 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 not right. You know, they are going to have very varied, interesting careers that are transitioning all the time with probably quite significant chunks of time out. And, you know, if you're a man, the idea that you're not going to take a, a year's paternity leave, you know, of course, you know, if that's what you want to do um, and people will take sabbaticals and, and so on and so forth. And so I think 
the workplaces that can adapt and evolve to accommodate these issues will be the ones that attract uh, the very best talent. And it's interesting because I think I heard somewhere that five different generations now work in the city. So so the organisations need to think very differently about how do they embrace that talent all the way through. Uh, but you, you talk about sort of flexible working. Uh, how do we encourage more men to take up flexible working? Uh, I think it's really interesting. So I think what organisations need to really ensure is that their own internal policies are in line with their sort of diversity narratives. And and, and so it's one thing to talk about um, wanting to kind of create a diverse workforce and um, wanting to make sure that there's sort of flexible working and, and and all of this kind of stuff. But I mean, even just sort of simple things like making sure that if you have an enhanced maternity policy, a maternity pay policy, you also have an enhanced paternity pay policy, because sometimes you can have a message that is sort of saying one thing, but an internal message that is conflicting against that. Um, and, and so I think kind of making sure that the sort of procedures and policies are in, in line and are the same for, 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 and are the same for everyone is really key a key part of that. And then when we think about the, uh, the the candidate mix, there's a real focus on bringing more young ethnic minority talent into the city as well. And Reggie, I'm really sort of keen as a young black man in the city as well, thinking on um, your career path, but also your mentoring as well and, and support that you, and, and how you help Elgin sort of address some of this as well. Um, to what, I suppose two questions really, to what degree do you personally feel compelled to be a role model and a champion? And what does that what does that lay at your feet in many ways? And then also, how do you um, how do you help organisations think very differently about appealing to ethnic minority talent? Well, I feel like it's almost incumbent upon me to do it because I, I had an experience where, and I didn't really think too much of it when I was in it at the time. But one of my internships, when I applied, and I fortunately got it. One of them, I they gave us the stats when we first started, and. They said congratulations to everyone here in this room. It was across EMEA and, you know, congratulations to the 115 of you that are on this internship. And I said, great, I'm a part of the 115. And then towards the end of the internship, we all came together again and everyone was in the room and I looked around and there's only three black people. And if there was 9,000 applicants, that's what they said, 9,000 applicants and 115 of you got it, congrats. So out of the 9,000, only you know, 115 of us got it, only three black people. And, you know, it could be down to various different reasons. I'm not here to say what the reasons are, et cetera, but... When I was in that room, I said to myself, if there are people um, of you know ethnic minority that are applying to these internships, which are really hyper competitive, then I feel like I need to be that person to just give them that helping because I've obviously done something right for me to be here. And I feel like there are other bright people and other people that do want to be in that environment. So if I give them the tips and tricks that I've learned and I can aid them, then that will make a world of difference. So I, yeah, I do feel like, you know, I... Um, sort of, well, I try to look at myself as that role model for them to say, you know, if, if I can do it, then you can do it. And these are the things that I did in order for me to achieve it. So that's something that I try to do. And like, as, um, Dominique has mentioned, my LinkedIn is always open for sort of young talent. So I have this rule whereby I will always reply to someone that is in university because I want to give them that best hand. And it's not a surprise that a lot of the messages that come are from ethnic minority people because they want someone to look at and say, you know, if he can do it, then I can do it. Okay, true role model in 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 every sense as well. And and when you're working with some of these working groups like the ACCA Emerging Talent as well, um, well, I mean, we've talked about reaching further and farther. Are there any other considerations that organisations should take on board if you particularly want to appeal to ethnic minority groups? I always say when I do talks for corporate institutions is provide visibility. One thing that is missing is 
people from an ethnic minority background do not have the visibility for them to say, I can achieve this or I can achieve that. For instance, if you are going to apply for an internship or whatever, if you look at the marketing scheme, a lot of the people on there are probably male and are probably white. So if you if you come from a background like that, you might say, okay, am I going to feel comfortable in this place? Am I going to feel this? Am I going to feel that? Some of the thoughts that might come to your mind are not even, you know, they might not even make sense at the time, but these are things that still pop into your mind. So I would just say for corporate institutions, provide that visibility for these students and show them that you don't have to be of this background or that, that background to be here. If you're good enough and you have the talent, then you can. And that stems from going to schools, colleges, universities and saying, hey, we hire people from all backgrounds. You don't have to be um, just a white male or a white female or a black person or whatever, whatever. If you're good enough, then you can. And that visibility there and just going there and saying that to them will open the minds of these people to say, okay, scrap what I thought before. I am good enough. So I'm going to apply and I'm going to make sure that I can work here in the future. It's just about providing that visibility, which is why I always sort of drum on when I go to these corporate institutions. And that's a great moment to just pause the show for a second as we turn to Robert and Cynthia, who are going to provide some research to support today's discussion. Reggie's story is a clear example of social mobility in action. But the 2018 City of London Social Mobility Employer Index highlights some of the challenges to job access and retention faced by those from underrepresented socioeconomic backgrounds. The survey collected submissions from 106 employers across 18 sectors, collectively employing over 1 million people. The employee survey, which formed part of that index, found that those who identified as working class were less likely to think their organisation is open to all class backgrounds, to discuss their class background or to feel that the senior leadership wants to diversify the class backgrounds of their organisation staff. KPMG came out top of the survey. The firm had been collecting comprehensive socioeconomic background data on its applicants and hires and wider workforce since 2014. KPMG has also commissioned internal research to determine how gender, ethnicity and socioeconomic background affect employees' progression in the firm. It's also due on the latest research and guidance across sectors to identify existing best practices. They use this data to track both the impact of their efforts to increase the diversity of people joining the firm and how the makeup of the organisation is changing. New technologies and changing social values mean that the nature of work is constantly changing. A 2018 article titled 15 Mind-Blowing Stats About the Future of Work suggested some of the ways the workplace will change. Here are some of the highlights. 65% of children entering primary school will hold jobs that currently don't exist. Artificial intelligence could double annual economic growth rates by 2035 by changing the nature of work and creating a new relationship between humans and machines. Besides being more efficient, tomorrow's workforce will be even more diverse than today's in terms of gender, ethnicity, culture, religion, sexual preference and identification, and perhaps even by other characteristics we don't currently know about. So thank you, Cynthia, and to Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. That's diversity with a C, diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating because it all helps to promote the show. 
So one of the things we think a lot about, in fact, actually, I, I, I talk about it a lot when I'm giving keynote speeches, uh, is about asking more of the recruitment process, the recruitment models to find talent as well. And lo- Dominic, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what works and what could be improved. Yeah, sure. So when one, when anybody is looking for a new role, um, there are sort of certain sort of traditional paths by which they would do that. And if you're thinking about the sort of mid and senior level experienced hire, it's very often through executive search companies. Now, executive search companies are really set up to find people who are already in a role and put them in another similar role. Um, they're not really set up to deal with candidates who are just sort of calling them off the street, if you like. It's just not their model. Um, and then you've got um, recruitment agencies more at the volume end. Uh, and very often that's a very competitive process. So a company will ask three companies, three three recruitment agencies to work on a role. And the company that will win the fee will be the one that gets the sort of squarest peg candidate for the square hold in the quickest time frame. Um, and then you've got the jobs boards now where even lots of senior roles are advertised online. These receive hundreds of applications and need to be whittled down into a manageable number by a human being. And the algorithms that do that sort of filtering will again sort of filter you out if you have a sort of non-linear career path or a, or a CV very often with, with gaps in it. And does that play into what Reggie was saying earlier about, you know, kind of actually you don't have that traditional... Yeah. career journey that you might be missed by the algos. Absolutely, exactly. And so really the, the sort of one of the, it's, I call it the sort of industrialization of the recruitment process, if you like, really sort of since the advent of things like LinkedIn and how recruitment has, has sort of really sort of come down to, you know, how can you find this sort of the closest fit candidate um, in the quickest time frame at the lowest cost? And that really is all about an industry that's set up to help companies hire people that look very like the people that they've already got. And and I think sort of to really understand what the recruitment industry is good at and what it's not so good at is really important for those organisations that are kind of getting a bit frustrated thinking, gosh, you know, we're doing all of these things. We've got all of these initiatives to try and increase the diversity of our workforce, but it's just not working. And we're going out to all the firms that we use, you know, all the recruitment firms and saying to them, you know, please, you know, help make sure we get sort of more women on shortlists. Um, so so what just- needs to change? So I think it's about looking at kind of, you know, new recruitment strategies and, um, and, 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 you know, we often obviously hear companies all the time saying, you know, we'd love to hire more women. There just really aren't any. And it's a real challenge to get um, females onto shortlists. And at the same time, you've got these hundreds, if not thousands of women going, well, hang on a minute, I'm over here. But the two, but the system, the industry that would usually connect them just wasn't built for these women who've had great careers, taken a break, gone and done something else and now want to come back again. And so that's a real, it's a real, it's a challenge. And I imagine there's probably some incentivization of how people get remunerated in that journey as well, which I'd love to get into. Sadly, yeah. we just don't have, <laughs> yes, have time today. Another, yeah. But, but it's, it's about alignment with the ultimate objective as well. Uh, yes. And, and um, Richie, let, let me just sort of give you in for sort of final thoughts, really, um, about the city and its appeal. And I imagine a lot of people, uh, particularly those you mentor, and as you say, we're looking further and wider have preconceptions about what the industry really means. What would your your thoughts be on that? Well, the city is a great place if you do, number one, if you're not sure about what you actually want to do. I feel like the city offers a great dynamic of things that you can get involved in. It's not just about number crunching and picking what stocks to invest in and what fixed income to invest in. It's a, it's, it's so much greater than that. And, you know, I, I'm in client business and, and, and investments, which is, on paper the sort of traditional thing that people that go into investment management or banking go into but there's a wide range of different things if you're good at marketing 
investment management firms and investment banking firms need a marketing division. They need digital marketers. They need people that work in communications. If you're more sort of middle office and you're quite a strategic thinker, then you can go into say operations. If you're a tech guru, you can go into technology and you know hard drive fixing and soft drive stuff. And there's just so many different things that you can actually do in the city. It's not just number crunching and looking at graphs, but a wide range of different things. These are very, very exciting times and we really encourage everything that you're doing. I think, Reggie, you're an amazing role model for, you. for young talent coming into the city. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and Dominique, to good reach out to these returners. Uh, wish you every success. Thanks both for coming on. Thank you, Julia. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>